You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And this week, Wade, we are going to be looking at a couple of films that, I don't know, social distancing isn't the most fun thing in the world, but maybe these films will at least make things seem a little bit rosier on that front. Yeah, you know, Kevin, I was thinking about it. What's a better way to practice social distancing than to get a vacation home in the middle of nowhere? Well, if you can afford it, sounds pretty good. Listeners, first up today, we review the new film from Dave Franco, the horror thriller The Rental. We're also going to be reviewing a film this week that will be kicking off what we're calling our Summer of Darkness series. That's because over the next five to six weeks, we're going to be reviewing a whole bunch of film noirs. We're kicking it off this week with the Humphrey Bogart starring Nicholas Ray directed In a Lonely Place. Loneliness, people hanging out in the middle of nowhere. It's the perfect episode for this summer. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 258 of Seeing and Believing. Let me show you out back and then I'll get out of your hair. The stars are insane out here. I should have brought the telescope. What do you need a telescope in the city for? Unless you're like a peeping Tom or something. Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 258. That was a clip from The Rental. We're going to get into our review here in a bit. Kevin, I'm excited to talk about our summer series. Last year, we had the summer of Stan. We talked about a number of Stanley Kubrick films across, I don't know, it was about two months. And we're going to do that here this summer with our Summer of Darkness series. We're going to be looking at film noirs. And I, I'm very excited about this, Kevin. I, there's so many good, uh, so many good films that we could talk about, and it's going to be difficult uh, just choosing, you know, the handful that we're able to discuss on the show. Yeah, you know, it isn't the best series if you want to cosplay while you watch. You know, like trench coats and fedoras don't go so well with the hot summer weather, <laughs> but we're making the best of it, and I'm really looking forward to delving into some of the classics of the genre. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I am too. And even catching up with a number of films that I have not seen yet. And that seems to be the case with any sort of marathon that we do. I, I get to watch movies that I've been meaning to watch and I, I haven't had time to, to check them out. So that's exciting. We're going to be talking about Nicholas Ray's 1950 film In a Lonely Place later on. Oh, I, I'm just going to say it. I love that movie. So listeners, don't go anywhere. Kevin, I, I do need to ask a couple of questions as we kind of get started here. Have you ever stayed at an Airbnb and worried you were being watched? Is the owner just trying to make some extra money on the side? Or are there more sinister plans afoot? Well, these questions are explored in Dave Franco's directorial debut, The Rental. Starring Dan Stevens, Allison Brie, Sheila Vond, and Jeremy Allen White, the rental follows two couples as they embark on a weekend getaway at a secluded vacation home. As you can probably guess, it's not long before relationships are tested and their serene environment takes on darker shades of gray. Kevin, before we get into the specifics of the film, I'd like to first touch on its effectiveness for you. This is not the first hotel-related horror movie in history. In fact, it owes much to the likes of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. But it does add a modern flair to the subgenre. My first question, that's not rhetorical, Kevin, uh, is this. Does the rental cause you to think twice about staying at any peer-to-peer rental properties in the future? Or does the movie's horror fall mostly flat? Well, I, in answer to the first part of the question, as a prematurely grumpy old man, uh, I already kind of regarded Airbnbs with a little bit of suspicion. Just as, you know, any sort of, you know, newfangled app-aided endeavor where you kind of have to rely on the trustworthiness of other other people who are just sort of part of the gig economy is sort of something that I just reflexively distrust, even if there's not a whole lot of rationality behind that. So I don't know that this makes me more unwilling to try out an Airbnb simply be- because I wasn't all that eager to do it to begin with. Um, as far as the whether the film itself just as a as a thriller, as a horror movie is is effective, I mean, I I don't I didn't find a whole lot to like about this film, and I actually found it to maybe have a little bit more in common with uh, home invasion thrillers rather than uh, you know something like Psycho, mainly because with Psycho that movie has something that this film wholly lacks, which is a a villain character who is compelling. I I think there's a vacuum at the center of the rental where there's not really a a sense that there's much driving this story forward. There's not a whole lot of fascination with the protagonists, which isn't all that unusual for horror movies where, you know, oftentimes the protagonists are kind of thinly sketched people who are there to be audience stand-ins for when the tension starts ratcheting up, right? Um, that's not true of all horror movies, but it's true of, of, of a fair number of them. But there needs to be kind of like the, a, a figure at the central, the killer, who at least 
is, is frightening or compelling or fascinating, maybe all three. And the rental really falls flat on that front. And there's nothing else really going on in the picture to really compensate for that vacuum at the center. So I think this one is a swing and a miss for me, but I'm curious <laughs> to know what your thoughts are. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's funny you say swing and a miss because baseball's back and I can definitely relate to that metaphor uh, <laughs> right now. No, I, it's it's not a good film and it's, it's frankly, it's, it's a pretty disappointing movie. And I wish I could work through some spoilers because I, I would like to compare it to something like Psycho and just just kind of revel in what Psycho does well and how this film does none of those things well. And it, it seems to want to stand on the shoulders of a film like Psycho and to maybe uh, twist up the, the genre to add, as I mentioned, a modern flair. And it just, it just doesn't work. And I think, I think the, the biggest uh, offense is that this is not one film, uh, this is two films. So the beginning of the movie, I, I think it creates a, a, an interesting premise. You have two couples, and there's some tension <laughs> with the couples. There's 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 kind of a, a lot going on below the surface. And the first part of this movie is really a, a kind of a dark relationship drama. And all of these kind of ideas are introduced. Uh, ideas like like you mentioned, the gig economy, ideas like uh, modern economics and uh, the wealthy, uh, who owns this house and and why do they have it and and why are they renting it out, and just kind of uh, overly enthusiastic millennials. There, there's 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 some humor here. There, there there are a couple of ideas. There are a couple of themes here, but uh, all of that ends at about forty five minutes, and we get this sudden shift and it's really bad the rest of the film is just absolutely horrible and erases everything that came before it so i think that uh, this movie has some promise and it has some humor and i think franco i think he i think he has an eye but the storytelling is uh, it's just very very weak yeah, I mean the the screenplay that Franco co-authored with or co-wrote with Joe Swanberg is part of the problem here. I I think that he doesn't really find a way to really dig into any of the the themes that are kind of floated in the film in any meaningful way that kind of justifies them. I mean, there, there's, there's nods to, you know, racial tensions in modern America. One of the, one of the house guests is, uh, somebody of, of Middle Eastern, uh, descent. And so she's feeling some tension because the, the caretaker of the house is this guy who, at least on the surface, seems kind of like the, the sort of, you know, middle-aged white man who just reflexively distrusts, uh, people of color, immigrants, uh, anybody who doesn't look like him. So there's there's gestures in that direction. There's some slight exploration of you know uh, relationship dynamics in uh, among millennials, just the the ways that uh, relationships lead to marriage or or don't lead to marriage. Um, and of course, like you said, there's also explorations of of class and and money and what is regarded as success. Those are kind of 
nebulously floating around ether, but Franco doesn't really do a whole lot with them. And even worse, none of those themes seem to really connect with the 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 violence of the film second half where the you know the nefarious uh killer makes himself known where the the characters find themselves in a in a very intense situation and uh are find themselves being drawn into moral compromises of their own those don't really seem to be at all really connected to any of the the theme that are introduced in the first half. So it does kind of have this weird, like you said, bifurcated quality where it's it almost seems like two movies. They don't really connect with each other. And it's not really clear what Franco, by the end of the film, is really trying to say about the violence that erupts on screen. What is the point of it? I was thinking about uh, the movie The Strangers, the horror, the home invasion horror film uh, starring Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman, and I'm not a huge fan of that film. Um, but one thing that it does have going for it is it creates this oppressive atmosphere um, that really leads the audience up to asking certain questions: Why are the Why are the killers doing this? Why are they invading this home? Why are they attacking this couple? And by the end of the picture, you get an answer that is incredibly bleak and also just it, it it really focuses the movie down into something the rental never really focuses down to much of anything it's just sort of essentially a quartet of friends goes to a house they have relationship drama and then a bunch of them die like that's not really that there's no there there there's no substance to it yeah and that relationship tension doesn't amount to anything in the overall plot, as as you've mentioned as well. It it just kind of flutters and and dies, and characters make really terrible decisions. I don't know. Th- there's something about a horror film where uh, a horror film could uh, could have characters uh, and face them with these impossible uh, decisions, and uh, they, maybe they make a poor choice and. It's an exercise in futility, and and we get that. So we get okay, they're really they're really lost. They're they're hopeless, and it says something about our desire for control and agency, and how uh, sometimes that just doesn't happen. And that's the horror of the film. And uh, this movie doesn't have anything. So it doesn't have that, or it doesn't have characters who are who are. Uh, you know, forced to uh, find some ingenuity and and survive. There, there's really kind of none of that. It it doesn't walk that line at all. And then uh, simultaneously, you you mentioned the the villain, and so you have some movies that like Psycho that that kind of get into the headspace of of the villain, and and it says something, and it's it's just kind of wonderful. And then you have other movies that make it a a mystery, and so. The real darkness is that there's no reason or rhyme to this. It's just pure evil. And this film doesn't fall into any of those categories. It's just this is something that somebody did. And uh, I, I think that that hurts, obviously, the overall value of the movie. And, and we don't walk away saying anything other than, yeah, it might be kind of kind of creepy to stay in someone else's place, and <laughs> yeah, I, I I stay in Airbnbs, uh, Airbnbs uh, periodically, and uh, I I don't have a have a problem with that. I, I don't walk away after this movie scared or frightened, uh, but I, I I will say this. I I guess what I was looking for is is for a movie to critique this type of gig economy and uh, this 
technology-based system uh, that seems to, to take away some faces while also saying, hey, you're staying at someone's home, so you, this is a unique experience, but also sometimes not. Uh, to maybe critique that, but also not walk away saying, hey, everyone is out to get you and uh, you have to be careful. You could, you know, you can never stay in any other space that's occupied by other people. Like there's just complete fear. And, and I don't know if the film really did anything with either of those. And, and so once again, we're left in this weird shady middle where, where nothing happens. And in the end, it's, it, it's not even compelling. Like the, the chase scenes and stuff, they, they just don't work on, on a, on a thrill level, uh, either. Yeah. The, uh, the meat and potatoes directing here is competent, but there's not enough there on its own to be compelling in its own right. Like, you know, I brought up the strangers earlier and the thing that that film succeeds at with flying colors is its framing. So, so often in that film, we get a character kind of in the foreground looking at something or, or talking to someone and the director frames, like leaves this, this huge empty space in the background. And at one point, uh, one of the killers just moves into the background slightly out of focus and just stands there. There's no like music sting. There's no, that, you know, the killer's not doing anything overtly threatening. He's just standing there and simply by virtue of the framing by the director, uh, it's it's a very tense moment just because of the way the, the shot is composed. There's nothing really like that in in this picture and that that hurts it. I think part of the problem is also that uh, it, it's it's not really clear that that Franco really knows if he could even answer the question of why, why did this happen? Why did this, why did the killer do all of this? Because by the end of the film, we've seen uh, him play so many mind games with these, these uh, four guests. He, you know, he kills them in, in very devious ways. He, you know, is kind of moving in and out. It's, he's almost like Jason Voorhees in the, in the way that he behaves and uh, his seeming unstoppability. And yet at the, you know, the end credits play over a, a, a sequence of video clips that hint at the way that the killer operates uh, elsewhere in his life. And it just kind of raises questions about that doesn't seem at all why, like the way he treated these four guests that we've spent an entire movie following. What's different about them that caused him to go through all the trouble of, you know, filming them and playing mind games with them? And the film never really answers that question. And it makes you wonder, is that because... Franco, it just doesn't really know, or that he doesn't think it matters, or is he saying that nothing matters? There, it's just what is this film saying? I don't know. I'm not sure that I would be satisfied by any <laughs> any any yeah. explanation, just because I didn't see any of that on screen. Yeah, and I I, I do have to give it up to Franco. You, you mentioned uh, some of the compositions in in the Strangers a movie I haven't seen. I think there are some some good compositions here. I think the overall look of uh, the movie is is not bad. There's definitely this emphasis on steam 
on mist, on fog, and we get some nice images there. And Franco also brings items or characters to the the foreground of of scenes. So even even just dialogue scenes, we'll, we'll get these objects or these individuals out of focus, and then we'll get the 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 focus or the center of the shot in focus. And probably that's the best way to say it. And so we get this sense of, of, of people kind of watching or looking through objects or peering from the outside. He just doesn't ever take that far enough, in my opinion. And I, I think there's maybe one, one or two images that I found were, were very arresting and memorable. Uh, the others looked pretty good, but but that's about it. So I'd like to see Franco kind of develop his style a little bit and, of course, develop his, his storytelling ability and, um, and see what he comes out with next because I think there's some promise in this film. It just uh, it just wastes it. It really does. Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you kind of wonder <laughs> what, what the animating creative impulse behind this film is. I'm not sure that I know. And I, it was disappointing because... The thing about home invasion thrillers, right, is is they bring this special kind of tension in that your home is sort of your safe space, and when a malevolent person comes into that space, there's there's a special kind of feeling of violation around as around the sense that you're you're safe here and all of a sudden you're not, and that's just a very unique and very compelling kind of feeling. And having uh, his characters essentially be home invaders who then experience a home invasion. They're in somebody else's home, and then somebody comes and invades that that safe space himself. And that's that layering is interesting, and it seems like maybe Franco is trying to explore the the idea of of homes and what is home and what 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 makes a person feel safe and in a uh, controlled environment that compelling. I just wish that there had been uh, a little bit more there, there to really uh, explore that in more depth. Yeah, yeah, and and when you spend the first half of the movie acting like you care about the characters, and you if the second half really not kind of giving a rip about the characters uh <laughs> did you care about the characters at all though i mean really did you well, well I... I think the i think the film wants me to be invested in their story it is a relationship drama so uh, it it wants us to uh it wants us to be intrigued by this and then it just pushes every single character by the wayside and, and so it's like well what do you want do you do you want us to be invested in this story do you do you not want us to be invested in this story and i think that's i, I think that's where the big problem is now do i think that the first half is just amazing no um but i was i was intrigued by by what the characters were going to do just see what had happened so i i guess that's i i guess that's what i'll give the movie <laughs> <laughs> Well, fair enough. Listeners, that is our review of The Rental, directed by James Fraco, starring Dan Stevens and Allison Brie. The film is now streaming on demand. You can find it on Amazon and many other streaming platforms as well. If you've seen the film and have any thoughts on it, let us know. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or shoot us a tweet at cbelievepod on Twitter. Don't go anywhere. In the second segment, we're going to be kicking off our film noir marathon with Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place.
That song is Peak by Cat. We want to thank all of our listeners who have supported us via our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you help the show continue forward, and uh, we're just thankful. We are thankful for all of your support. If you'd like to support Seeing and Believing, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And Kevin, got a lot of different donation levels. One of my favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. And uh, wanted to ask you, I know what I know how much you can get a rental property for if you want to stay a weekend, <laughs> but what can you buy for five bucks? Uh, five bucks would get you a rental for a weekend of a tiny little roller coaster for a pet gerbil or a hamster. Wow, that's I mean that's that's not bad. Maybe made out of uh, Legos, possibly. Who knows? I mean, if that is structure, if if that would have the structural integrity to keep the hamster safe as it goes, you know, around, you know, loop to loops and and corkscrews, you know, the, of course, safety comes first when you put your hamster mm-hmm. inside a tiny little roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not. I'm no engineer, so I can't. Mm really speak to that i mostly just think it's good for you know hamsters so often kind of just create their own roller coaster by running on that wheel so maybe it's time to, to give a little bit back to the hamster and let them kind of enjoy the feeling of multiple g's and, and incredible speed without them having to do all the work <laughs> well less people think that we are joking i will say this my two sons have discovered there is a section of youtube dedicated uh to hamsters uh, specifically hamster videos for kids. And uh, these people, I'm telling you, this is true. These people make these wild mazes for hamsters. And my kids want a hamster so bad because of, of those videos. And the answer is absolutely no. But now that now that I do know that you can get a roller coaster for five bucks for a weekend, who knows, maybe I'll change my mind. Yeah, it seems like a good investment if you have <laughs> kids. Listeners, go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And uh, Kevin, we posted a few months ago our favorite films of the decade. We did a whole podcast episode on that. And we also produced a an episode for our Patreon supporters. It's exclusive. And it was our 11 through 20 picks. And last week we read Christy Olson. She commented on that thread on Patreon and she talked about her favorite films of the decade. Eric Johnson, uh, a supporter. Uh, I've actually met up with Eric. He lives in the area. He posted his rough list of his uh, of his favorite films of the decade. And this is a really good list. I'll read it. I'll read it out. I'll, I'll go quick. There's 20. Uh, Arrival, Whiplash, A Separation, The Florida Project, Dunkirk, this is Martin Bonner. Shame, Knives Out, Room, The Secret in Their Eyes, the film from Argentina. Little Women, I, Daniel Blake. Selma, The Overnighters, 50-50. Manchester by the Sea, Leave No Trace. The Kings of Summer, Short Term 12, and Stories We Tell. A, pr- a pretty good list, Kevin. Yeah, I was. I uh, enjoyed looking at Eric's list when he posted that on our, our post on Patreon, uh, I thought it was a really solid list. I was especially happy to see uh, The Secret in Their Eyes make it onto number 10 on his list. That's a a really good film, one I don't hear very much about. Um, and by all accounts, the American remake of it was not didn't really measure up 
to how good it was. So I would definitely recommend any listeners who want to check it out to make sure they check out the Argentinian version rather than the American version. This is Martin Bonner, another really undersung gym. And just like Christy Olsen, uh, Eric really recognizes the greatness of the Florida Project, which I can't say enough good things about. So I'm really glad to see that on his list. Just overall, a, a really good top twenty. Oh yeah, there are a number of good films, and and some of these you even kind of forget. Many of them, there are, there are many here that didn't make my like top fifty, but they're really good. Something like The Overnighters uh, is is a very fascinating documentary and then stories we tell there, there were a lot of good films that came out in the the 2010 so really appreciate it eric listeners you can comment on our patreon page if you are a patreon supporter if not we would still love to hear your thoughts tell us what your favorite films of the decade are and uh, possibly even suggest what films you'd like to see us explore in our summer of darkness noir series we're going to get to that in just a moment do so on Twitter, at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. No, you're a quitter. A get-out-before-you-get-hurt type. Is that bad? Well, I suppose you save yourself a lot of trouble that way. I do. I think twice before I get into something. <laughs> you're getting into something right now. No, I'm not. Well, we're back with the second half of our show, and, Wade, this is one of those times... When my inability to do accents comes back to really bite me because I want <laughs> so badly to imitate sort of the hard-boiled noirish sort of, hey, something you see, now we're going to, you know, we're going <laughs> to, see, I can't even do it. But I, you know, kind of do the hard-boiled, you know, 1930s voice to open up the discussion of our film noir series. And I just... I can't do it, and it breaks my heart. <laughs> Here's the deal, Kevin. When have uh, us not being able to do an accent ever stopped us from trying to do that accent? I mean, if we're honest well, with listeners, ourselves. <laughs> listeners just heard me uh, try and spectacularly fail uh, in the last 30 seconds, so I guess that's true. That hasn't stopped us before, but maybe it should. Maybe yeah, it yeah. Should. <laughs> it's funny because we're always like, yeah, we just, you know, we just didn't do it very well, but then we keep doing it. Uh, it says something about who we are as people. We're, we're, we persevere. Nobody can stop us. Oh, hope springs eternally. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we think maybe this time will be the magic time where all clicks and I can just bust out that accent without even trying but alas this time it didn't work out and things not working out is maybe one of the defining uh thematic uh commonalities of film noirs everywhere the idea that uh, the characters find themselves in a variety of different conflicts they're uh, often very different from each other but one thing that always remains the same, Wade, in film noirs is that things don't go according to plan, bad things happen, and there's a sense that the world is a difficult place to find your way through. <laughs> and that is a theme that is brought home in the film that we're using to kick off our marathon, 
uh, In a Lonely Place, directed by Nicholas Ray from 1950, starring, of course, the great Humphrey Bogart, who needs no introduction, and the great Gloria Graham, who is a little undersung. Most listeners probably remember her as Violet from the Frank Capra film It's a Wonderful Life, but here she's playing a very different character and acquits herself quite well, I think. In a Lonely Place is an interesting outlier uh, in some ways to open up a film noir series. It's not a hard-boiled detective story. The main character is arguably Graham rather than Bogart, and the way that the audience's allegiances are played with over the course of the film are not unheard of for film noir, but maybe go in directions that you wouldn't necessarily expect, given the fact that this is a Humphrey Bogart vehicle in a lot of ways. So the main story of this film is maybe what you might call a hard-boiled relationship story. Bogart is a screenwriter with a hot temper, Graham is his neighbor across the courtyard, and they find their paths intersecting when a young woman who had just been visiting Bogart's apartment turns up dead leaving Bogart as the prime suspect. So, Wade, uh, we can maybe get into the story a little bit in more detail here in a second now that we are in the 70th anniversary of the film, so I feel like spoiler alerts maybe aren't quite as needed for this one. But you mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you love this film, you think really highly of it, and so maybe we can just start there. What do you find so compelling about this film, and, mm. and what about it speaks of, of film noir to you? Yeah, well, I, I, I do like this movie a lot, and I, I don't know if it's my favorite film noir, but it, it's definitely up there. I, I'm a Humphrey Bogart fan. We talked about him years ago. We had a Humphrey Bogart-themed episode, and uh, yeah, I just... I think this is this is one of his best roles. We talked about a number of movies, and and we didn't have a chance to fit in a lonely place in, but I'm glad we didn't because we can devote a whole segment of the movie here. It's fascinating that that you talk about some of the uh, the textures of film noir and how this movie is at times outside of those bounds. Uh, it's fascinating when you look at this movie uh, visually. Uh, it, at times, it's 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 well lit. It's mostly well lit, and there are there are medium toned grays so it's not strictly black or white there are a few scenes where the shadows seem to surround the characters but uh, that's that's not very often this is a film about a murder and about a murder mystery but that almost takes second place to as you mentioned kevin this relationship drama and I, I think that a good noir film is a film that, of course, has these uh, elements of intrigue and criminality and, and murder, but it's, it's mostly about the choices that people make and what people are compelled to do, often even, even good people. Uh, and I think that's, that's what the focus is here. Both actors at the center of this movie are incredible and we are going to get into the spoilers so uh, uh I, I will just you know come out and say it the first time i watched this movie i was just in, engrossed with the question of well did bogart's character did dixon Steele murder that young woman and it's incredibly tense and even after we find out that he didn't at the end of the movie 
we we still think he might kill uh, Laurel Gray's character. Uh, and of course, that 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 doesn't happen. In in this watch, this is my second time to watch it. Uh, I know he didn't do it, but he's still a a pretty. He's not a good person, and I, that just brings out, I think, more life to the story. So, I, you know, I could talk on and on, but I'd love to get your thoughts on on this film, Kevin, because I actually, I, I don't think we've ever talked about this movie. I don't even know if you like this movie. I assume you do. <laughs> I don't know if you do for sure. Yeah, so we, we haven't talked about it uh, at length on the show before. I think you might have had it as your weekly recommendation at some point in the past, but we haven't talked about it. And part of the reason was I hadn't seen it. And so this was actually my first time seeing the film. And the thing that surprised me the most about it was that I was so surprised by it. If it when, when I think of film noir, it's not so much that um, they all follow a similar sort of plot template or structure. There, There's a lot of variety narrative-wise in, in the... Uh, in, in the aesthetic, I guess. It's not really a, a genre in the same way a superhero movie is, where, say, you know, you have an origin story, and then there's a villain, and they, they have a climactic fight, and the hero wins. That kind of sameness to the plots isn't really present film noir. It's more of a mood. But I was sort of—I did kind of come into it expecting it to be a certain way. I was expecting this being a Bogart film to to be one where if he was morally ambiguous, at least we were going to be firmly on his side. He was going to command the audience's sympathies and the the one-liners that cracks and sort of the, the cool that he affects when he's being interrogated by the cops about this girl's death. We kind of expect that to be a veneer, right? Like, oh, this is just bogey kind of being the, the sort of unflappable hero who maybe isn't a good person, but who is, is somebody that you can kind of enjoy being around. And in a lonely place, Nicholas Ray actually... The way he crafts Bogart's performance and the way that the story eventually goes, you begin to realize, you know, I, I don't think I'm on Bogart's side. I don't think I even like Bogart that much. I think he might have actually killed this girl. And that is one of the, the things that really makes this an indelible experience. And maybe in some ways it's almost too real. By, by the end of the movie where... Graham is essentially frantically trying to escape the relationship she's gotten into with Dixon Steele. You uh, you want her to escape. He seems like a textbook abuser. He doesn't seem like it, the the climax where he's seems like he might inflict some sort of horrible violence on her isn't inter. It isn't thrilling in the way you expect. Uh, this sort of confrontation to go in a in a noir film. You think of uh, the the final confrontation between Barbara Stanwyck and Fred Fred McMurray in Double Indemnity, where you it, it's it's stylish and there's a little bit of entertainment to be had in the fact that they're squaring off against each other at last. In the climax of In a Lonely Place, you just want her to get out, and I think the fact that it feels uncomfortably real makes it not unique among among noirs but makes it at least on a first viewing just very engaging and you you just 
you you come away from it with with a lot of complex feelings and i don't know i i enjoyed that quite a bit yeah i i love what you say about bogart's character and there is this sense that he's working against type i love the line uh, where uh, where gloria graham she says i i like his face and that's that's definitely a trademark of humphrey bogart his his unique face the the canyons in his uh, skin, they say they say so much about his life, and he, he looks a little worn here too. This is this he's he's starting to go down. Uh, he's he's going to start going downhill pretty soon, and, and you can see him carrying that. And uh, he gives a great performance. He's 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 funny. He's uh, uh, you can kind of tell why someone would stay with him. He's he's, he's charismatic. He's cool, uh, but he's very violent. It goes back to what I mentioned earlier. We know at the end of the movie, we know he didn't kill the woman, but we still think he he could be a murderer. And uh, and that's that's uh, pretty uh, pretty amazing how they kind of go about doing that. I, I'll also say too, just with the with the title, right? So in a lonely place, he talks about how uh, the woman was killed and they were taken to kind of this lonely, this deserted place. And then uh, Bogart says at one point, you get to a lonely place in the world. Uh, this is a film that kind of looks at uh, looks at Hollywood. He's a screenwriter and really goes into the background, the behind the scenes of, of fame. And the effect that that has on people and we have conversations about people being washed up and people trying to make it and and people making bad pictures just to survive and below that what helps him to be creative uh well it, it in the end it, it becomes laura gray's character he's she's kind of a muse uh, to him she becomes this housewife to him and he's able to write uh better than he has in years because of her. And so you get the sense that there's this uh, there's this Hollywood sign, but behind it, people are being used and people are being abused to perpetuate that system. And man, that scene at the end where he he pops his uh, agent, I mean, that's 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 a scene where you're like, man, this is not a good person. Like this is like he's almost killed a motorist at this point, but but he's a, <laughs> he's not good. Yeah, there's. I, I think the interesting thing about uh, Dixon Steele in this film is there's a certain element of self-awareness to him that is very interesting. You think about a film like Gaslight, right? You know, In- Ingrid Bergman's husband in that picture is he's 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 like a mustache twirling villain, right? Like you don't know why he's trying to drive. Bergman insane in this film, but you know that he's just 100% evil and you, you know, he's a boo hiss villain. In this film, Bogart does a lot of the same things as the villain of Gaslight. He, you know, he kind of, he controls Laurel Gray. He, he uh, tells her what to do. He use, he manipulates her into staying with him and uses uh, his, the force of his charm, his personality, and even his physical presence to make her do what he wants her to do. And that's, you know, the, there's a lot of similarities between him and the villain of Gaslight, but uh, Steele is so much more interesting because you get the sense that he kind of, 
he he's aware that he has these darker parts of his personality and there's a sense that even when when he gives himself over to them it, it's it's almost like he's he's not in control of himself which make, which makes him more in, in some ways more scary than the villain of gaslight but also makes him more human and i think those two things are linked and I think that that probably leads us to the scene that I, I really have been wanting to talk to you for ever since I saw the film, Wade, which is the scene where Bogart is in the living room with uh, a couple of his friends, uh, his friend from the war and his friend's wife. And he asks them to uh, sort of reconstruct the way he thinks the murder might have gone down. Now, you're driving up the canyon. Your left hand's on the wheel. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. She's, uh, she's telling you she's done nothing wrong. You pretend to believe her. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person without using your hands. You're driving the car, and, and you're strangling her. You don't see her bulging eyes or protruding tongue. Go ahead, go ahead, brother. Squeeze harder. You love her. And she's deceived you. You hate her patronizing attitude. She looks down on you. She's impressed with celebrities. She wants to get rid of you. You squeeze harder. Harder. Squeeze harder. It's wonderful to feel her throat crush under your arm. Rob, stop it. I didn't hurt you, did I? Now, I mean, that, that speech that you just heard is you know, really well written and extremely well delivered by Bogart. But what you don't necessarily appreciate just hearing it is the way that Nicholas Ray lights that scene. He's got Bogart sitting mostly in shadow, but he's got this key light on his face illuminating his eyes. And there's just this avid look in Bogart's eyes as he's delivering that monologue. And you get the sense that there's there's something sick in him, right? Like there, there's a sense that he writes these stories about about crime and killers. He's essentially, you can imagine him writing a film noir kind of like this. And the reason he does it is he's kind of fascinated by the mechanics of abuse and violence and murder. And he's almost not in control of himself there. Uh, but you also get the sense that he kind of, he knows that that is true of him, which is maybe why he finds himself with kind of this this case of writer's block and not wanting to write a crime picture until he meets Laurel Gray. And I think that that tension is really the live wire that keeps this this film humming along throughout its entire runtime. Yeah, it's a, it's a great scene. And it, it's funny because uh, the detective's wife, she talks about Bogart and, and she looks at her husband later on and she's, she says, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're normal. And Bogart, it's more than, than he's just, he's got some dark tendencies, but he's also, he has dark tendencies, but he's also this creative artistic type that lets his imagination run wild. So it's an explosive combination. And there are these little details, I think, fill in his character. And at first, when you're watching the movie, we hear that he was a commanding officer during the war. And we think, and we also hear that he hasn't had a had a hit, uh, or he hasn't made a good movie or written a good movie since before the war. And so you, you think, oh, well, maybe that affected him, and maybe this is a film about 
um, before they knew what to call it, but, but something like PTSD. Uh, and then later, at the end of the movie, his agent talks about how he has been violent like this for, for 20 years. And I think that's when you get into more and more territory where it, 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 it's, it's much more than just, oh, this person has experienced something traumatic. But there is this kind of darkness that hovers around the surface. And there are times when its, when its origins are unknown, uh, but it's there and it's lurking. And if we give into those impulses, uh, then uh, we are really going to p- perpetuate uh, evil in the world and so i i i just i do appreciate some of those those smaller uh, touches uh, that they have in in the movie and i'll say this too kevin i i was reminded of quentin tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood and it makes me wonder if this is one of those films that influenced that film you get some great scenes where they're just kind of driving around classic hollywood you get a relationship drama you get unstable uh famous individuals who are working in this hollywood system and uh obviously i think this is a better film i I like once upon a time in hollywood i think this one is is a better film but you can see some of the noir influences even in a film that you wouldn't necessarily call noir uh, and that's once upon a time in hollywood yeah it it is I, i i didn't like once upon a time in hollywood quite as much as you obviously but i think the reason, the thing I like about this film is that it it's pretty fearless in the way that it it allows Bogart's darkness to really uh, not not define him, but but it it's it doesn't really pull its punches with him, right? By by the end of the film, you really kind of you see him for who he is, just as. Uh, Gloria Graham's Laurel sees him for who he is. There's, you know, that obviously really intense confrontation they have at the end, but that uh, confrontation is punctuated by the phone ringing. You know that the phone ringing is the 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 detectives trying to get hold of him, hold of one of them, saying we, you know, we know he's not the killer. We've got the we've got the real killer's confession. Uh, you're in the clear. And if one of them had, you know, would just pick up the phone and and hear that, things might be okay. And at the same time, the the effect of that ringing phone during that confrontation is almost like an alarm clock. In, in a way, uh, they're they're kind of waking up to the fact that this is a relationship that simply can't work. That has been irrevocably damaged by whatever demons Dixon Steele has. So that you there, there's this complex feeling where, as the audience member, you know one of them needs to pick up the phone. If they would only pick up the phone, this, this horrible <laughs> yeah. confrontation would stop. But at the same time, you're like, maybe it needs to go to its... It needs to be played out in some way simply because... Laurel needs to get away from Dixon. There, there's just something about this relationship that can't work. And again, that that complex feeling is just, I think that's something that film noir can do really well, where uh, it, it takes such such stark and sometimes brutal uh, story mechanics and aesthetic choices. And through those sometimes crude elements, it can really make you... <laughs> make you as a viewer interrogate what you want out of the story, what you want for these characters and why you want those things. And I think that that's just 
something that's so tremendously interesting and something that film noir is just very adept at creating. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think uh, the last thing I have to say about this movie is is that famous line, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. And it, it says something to uh, the nature of this relationship and how it's not completely bad, but it can't last. It won't last. And there will be moments of joy, but that will eventually disappear. Uh, so yeah, that's just uh, so many so many gems in this film. Listeners, that is our review of In a Lonely Place. Make sure to share your thoughts about the film. There's a great Criterion release. You, you definitely need to check it out. Tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we usually recommend a film at the end of our episode, uh, but we're, we're just going to recommend the film that we just talked about, and I, I think that works perfect today. Yeah, and you know, if listeners uh, have already seen it and are looking for something else to watch, maybe uh, our other recommendation for this week can be the film that we are going to be reviewing next week uh, as the second film in our Summer of Darkness film noir marathon. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's probably my favorite noir, um, so I'm really excited to talk about it with you. It is, of course, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity Gosh, it's a good one, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it, and uh, hopefully our listeners uh, have time to check it out so that they can uh, enjoy the conversation uh, along with us. It'll be a good one for sure. Yeah, I've, I've only seen that movie one time. I'm very excited about seeing it again and just kind of uh, seeing how it plays a second time uh, and being, being fresh for this, this conversation, but I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about talking about it. Uh, so listeners, make sure to check it out so you can follow along in next week's spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.